we're turning a, a bit of a corner in Mark's gospel. Um, we are headed into the beginning this morning, the, the passion section of Mark, where we really focus in on Jesus's um, going to the cross and his paying the price for sin and then his resurrection. And so uh, this morning, just kind of bear that in mind that there's a bit of a shift in, in direction in Mark's gospel. We've been preparing for that as Jesus has entered Jerusalem, but now uh, Passover is, is very near and Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. With, with that as background, if you would take your copy of God's word and join me in verse 1, uh, we're going to hear from God this morning. Mark 14, verse 1. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. And the chief priests and the scribes, that's the Sanhedrin, were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She's done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and wherever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She's done what she could. She's anointed by body beforehand for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would help us to really comprehend what you're saying in these 11 verses. God, that you would show us why it is that you put such a beautiful story of sacrifice right in the middle of such a terrible story of betrayal. God, help us to understand what Mark is trying to show us by the way that he has written this story. God, help us to evaluate our lives and our hearts and our motivations this morning. Holy Spirit, truly enter into our, our minds and our hearts in such a way. God, we know you're, you're always present, but be especially present with us today and teach us individually and corporately about the great worth of Jesus. God, we ask that you would do it for his glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 14, as I was saying earlier, begins a, a new section in Mark covering the passion of Jesus. The word passion is a, comes from a Latin word meaning to suffer. The suffering and the death of Jesus for sin will come after he is betrayed and accused and denied 
and abandoned, not just by Judas, but by the end of chapter 14, by all of his disciples. All of the insiders will either deny him or flee from him because of cowardice or fear or weakness. Verse 1 tells us Passover is two days away. Passover is one of those great festivals in Jerusalem, celebrating Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt and God's sparing of their firstborn sons by the death of the Passover lamb and the painting of the blood over the doorpost. This Passover was anticipating the greater Passover that would come when the Lamb of God would come and take away the sins of the world. But until that time, people would flood into Jerusalem at Passover, which complicated the plans of the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and the scribes who were done with Jesus. Jesus had been to the temple and he had told them what he thought of the temple and of their um, religious shenanigans and their unwillingness to show the gospel, the good news that Christ would come to the nations. And they wanted to do away with him, but they didn't want to stir up the people who were fans of Jesus. So they thought they would wait until after Passover. Let's just get through the holiday. We don't want to let people know that we're frustrated. But Jesus was the answer and the fulfillment of that holiday. And as we will see, though they had their own plans, God would see to it that Jesus, the once for all Passover lamb, would get to the cross at Passover. Men will freely choose to sin, but God will sovereignly see to it that Jesus fulfills the promise of Passover once for all. You see, in the death of Christ, we see human freedom and divine sovereignty both at work and never in conflict. Sinners entirely responsible for the sin that they commit and God entirely responsible for getting His Son to the cross just in time to save sinners. The Sanhedrin are not casual in their dismissal of Jesus. They are callous and they're calculating. In verses 1 and 2, the words are incredible. They are seeking how to kill him. The word seeking how means to gain control over another. They want to seize him, verse 1, which means to bind up someone and leave them powerless. By stealth means they will deceive if necessary as long as they can kill Jesus in cold blood. And Judas... An insider, someone that Christ has groomed as one of his own over the season of his public ministry. One of the twelve finds an opportunity that he cannot refuse. Soon Peter will deny Jesus and his other disciples will abandon him as well. And the question that's sort of in the background as we begin chapter 14, because Mark knows where he's going. He's going to lead us and Jesus to the cross. He's going to tell us about that journey. He's going to show us how everyone falls away. And the question that he answers at the beginning is, is there not any other response to the worth and the glory and the majesty and the wonder and the miracle that God came down to go to the cross for me? Is there not anyone who will understand? Is there not anyone who will be broken over the goodness of God in Christ Jesus for us? Will anyone love this son who came to die for sin? This is the question that Mark addresses by inserting this beautiful story of sacrifice right in the middle of the story of the betrayal of Jesus. While many will betray and abandon Jesus... There will be some, like this woman, who see Jesus' infinite worth and respond to Him with extravagant acts of love. 
this morning, what we see in this text is if we're going to respond rightly to the gift of Jesus, if we're going to respond in a way that honors Jesus, we must love Him extravagantly. Secondly, our giving must be motivated by Jesus' worth. Thirdly, we must recognize that the gospel liberates us from allegiance to other gods. And finally, we must understand there's only two options. We must understand there's only two options. First, we will love Jesus extravagantly. Jesus is at Bethany, back where he had raised Lazarus from the dead, just a few miles outside of Jerusalem, and he's there reclining at the table at the home of Simon the former leper. Now the text doesn't say former leper, but we know he has to be a former leper because lepers don't have house parties. Former lepers can, but active lepers cannot. And so uh, it's possible that Simon is the, the father of Mary and Martha and Lazarus because there's a similar account over in John chapter 12. And if that is indeed the same story, then the woman who's breaking the vial here is the Mary who's breaking the, the vial in John 12. And it's, it's likely that that's the case. And yet, Mark leaves her unnamed because he doesn't want us to focus on who the woman is, but on the action that she takes, which is an action that should characterize the life of every true disciple of Christ. You see, everything is normal in this story until an unnamed woman shows up, walks in, and breaks an alabaster vial of costly perfume of pure nard and pours it over Jesus' head. I mean, can you imagine? You're like... Laying there reclining, having a nice meal, and somebody walks in and cracks open a very expensive bottle and pours it on Jesus' head. What in the world is going on here? Compound the awkwardness of the moment with this little fact. It was improper for a woman to interrupt Jewish male fellowship unless they were there to serve food. But this woman breaks into the room, breaks social convention in order to break an alabaster vial of costly perfume and anoint Jesus her Savior. What she thinks of Jesus trumps what others will think of her. The extravagance of her gift is shown not only in her public display of love for Jesus, but also in the way that Mark tells us about the value of of the nard. 300 denarii was the equivalent of a year's wages. It wasn't just any nard, it was pure nard. It was the good stuff. I don't know about you, but I enjoy balsamic vinegar. And I'll spend a little extra money to go to a place that that gives you pure, real, reduced down balsamic vinegar. Not the stuff at Walmart, but the good stuff. I love that stuff. It's fantastic. That's, That's what this nard was. It was real pure, expensive, lavish nard. And in a day, and in that day rather, women typically did not earn the sort of wages needed to purchase an alabaster vial of pure nard. Now we know there are exceptions like Lydia who had her, um, her garments that, that she made, her, her linen industry if you will, but in general women didn't make this kind of money. And so This woman in this text is likely sacrificing not something that she just went down to the store and picked up, but rather a family heirloom with sentimental value as well as monetary value. 
It was likely something passed down perhaps for generations as a token of love and a last option security blanket if it was ever needed. Hey, if times ever get really tight, if you ever need a year's worth of money to live on, there's an alabaster vial of pure nard for you. Her gift was personally meaningful and it was exceptionally valuable. It represented her very best. It was a trade, church, of all of her earthly hope for the surpassing value of Christ. And it was all or nothing. This vial didn't have a cork on top. It didn't have a lid that you could undo and give Jesus a little bit of your best and hold back a lot of your best for yourself. She was going to have to give Jesus all of her best or she was going to have to give him nothing. And the, the, tr- the same is true for us, church. If we're going to be used by God, we've got to be broken of ourself. We've got to be poured out for the glory of Christ our King in whom we delight without any reservation. When we understand what God has accomplished for us in Christ, we are compelled to give Him our all. Her gift is so extravagant. Look at verse 4. Some call it a waste. We've, we've got our church, we've got many of our church who are walking through the Dave Ramsey Steps to Financial Peace. And, and I'm grateful for that program. There's a lot of wisdom in that program. But, but this sort of giving is not on the Dave Ramsey plan. Right? This is not going to increase your financial peace but she's not trying to pursue financial peace she's pursuing the king who came to give her peace with God and when you've got peace with God on the inside it motivates you sometimes to do things that the world doesn't understand and that the world might even call wasteful and not just the world by the way but the inner circle of Jesus's disciples call it a waste what are you doing The dinner guests are angry at her. Verse 5, they're scolding her, literally flaring their nostrils at her in anger. Who do you think you are wasting that family heirloom on Jesus? Then they add the very pious sounding remarks. Think about all the poor people you could have helped with that. Here's a very, very critical point in this passage, church. Christian giving, not worldly giving, but Christian giving, is motivated not primarily by the good that we can do, but by the good that Christ is. Christian giving is motivated not primarily by the good that we can do, the little life that we can touch, the impact we can make over here, the impact we can make over there, but simply, I got Jesus. My life has been changed, it's been transformed, it's been turned upside down, and so I'm going to respond lavishly and extravagantly, and the world might even call it wasteful. And as I do that, I'm going to trust that Jesus will use it how he wants to use it for the glory of his name. I'm giving in response to the glory of his name, not because I can do something little good over here. We don't give because of the worthiness of a cause but because we are overwhelmed by the worth of the one who included us in his cause. Secondly, y'all here this morning, is this on? It's a little counterintuitive. But the gospel is counterintuitive. It turns the world upside down. Secondly, our giving is motivated by Jesus' worth. 
While others in the room are ridiculing the woman, Jesus commands them to leave her alone. Let her alone. It's a command. Stop it. Then what they call a waste, Jesus calls a good or a noble or a beautiful thing. The consensus in the room is that her sacrifice is a waste. But Jesus thinks her sacrifice is wonderful. Have you noticed how often Jesus bucks the consensus in the room? Jesus is seldom in agreement with the crowd. Because Jesus is the main event. To call the gift a waste is to underestimate the worth of the one to whom it is given. There's a reason why it is better, husbands, to give your wife a getaway weekend for your anniversary than it is to purchase her a new vacuum cleaner. One gift displays the great value of your wife because she's your wife. The other displays the value of your wife for what you can get out of her or what she can do for you. In verse 7, Jesus makes a shocking statement. You always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you don't always have me. Now we know that Christ uh, is not going to be gone too long. He's going to be right back, and He's going to ascend, and He's going to pour out His Spirit and say, I'm with you always. Jesus here is not saying the poor don't matter. He's not putting down the poor. He affirms the Old Testament commands to care for the alien and the poor. The poor matter greatly to God. The poor often have a head start on understanding that we are all spiritually poor unless we're rescued by Christ. We are all poor. And we need the riches of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus commands the rich young ruler to sell all he has and give it to the poor. He says when we throw a feast or a festival to invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, Jesus is not anti-poor. However, Get this, church. Jesus is worth infinitely more than even the poor. He's worth infinitely more than the sum of all the other things in the universe, which is why we sang, When I Survey the Cross, a hymn that Charles Wesley said, if I could have one hymn, if I had to throw away all the other hymns that I've written and keep one hymn, it would be, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Were the whole realm of nature mine. It would be an offering far too small. Add up the value of every dollar, every mineral, every molecule, every star, every asteroid, every angel, every soul that ever was or will be and set it on the scale across from Jesus and the scale will not even move. Our sending of missionaries, our care for the poor, our provision for pastors and ministers to lead us in discipleship, and all the other things that we support through our budget should not flow from the value of those things or the importance of those activities, but from the value of Jesus. This is why, church, project-based giving can be dangerous to our spiritual health if we're not careful. We can become more excited about the project than the Jesus we worship with sacrifices of extravagant love. It's the worth of Jesus that motivates the giving of the Christian. The local church is the family for which Christ died and has purpose to make His glory known in all the earth. 
We bring our best gift to Jesus. Why? Because he's Jesus. And we get Jesus. And we watch him work through his local church. As Danny Aiken writes, in placing himself above the poor, Jesus places himself above even the great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. Extravagant giving to Christ for the sake of Christ shows the extravagant worth of Christ. And our ultimate aim as a church, yes, we want to reach people, we want to love people, we want to see people come to know Jesus, but our ultimate aim is to glorify Christ no matter what, to display His worth, to worship Him because He is God. The disciples have heard about Jesus' coming death in chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, and what have they done about it? Absolutely nothing. Meanwhile, this woman anoints his body, sparing Jesus the indignity of a criminal's death. Somehow, this woman has understood the unbelievable transaction that's going to happen at the cross, which is why I think this is Mary, because she's seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead previously. She's heard him say that if you believe in me, then you'll never die. And I think she started to connect the dots. Somehow, she has understood that the life of God's Son will be given for sinful sons and daughters so that we might become the sons and daughters of God. And because that is true, nothing less than her very best will do as a demonstration of her love and her appreciation of Jesus' worth. No sacrifice for Jesus could be too great because Christ is greater still. I want to ask you, church, do we, do we love Jesus like this? Do we treasure Jesus in this way? Or is this just for us a rare, atypical example back there in the Bible that we kind of read over and say, that's nice, but, but that'll never be for me? Does Jesus get your first and your best and your greatest, or does he get what's left over? Listen to what Danny Aiken writes in his sermon on this very passage. Have you in your life as a follower of King Jesus, ever made a sacrifice of extravagant love? Can you recall a time when you did something that really cost you? A time when you really went without something you really wanted because of a sacrifice of extravagant love for Jesus? He goes on to say this, sadly, we are good at giving Jesus our leftovers and our hand-me-downs. I served at a church once whose student building was filled with old, worn-out, ratty couches. Sweet folks in our church had bought new couches for their homes and donated their old, worn-out couches to the church and in the process got a tax break and felt good that they had done something noble. But had they really? I must confess the couches in the youth center had been given by me. It was no longer worthy of being in my house, but it was good enough for Jesus. Church, the fame and the glory and the infinite worth of Jesus is not proclaimed with leftovers or with duct tape or with hand-me-downs. The fame and the worth and the glory of Jesus is built upon Christ who is worthy of my life, my soul, my all. Do we know this Jesus? Do we treasure this Jesus? Do we love this King? 
We must give our lives and our livelihood in response to the great worth of Jesus. Thirdly, we must recognize the gospel liberates us from allegiance to lesser gods. Aren't you glad that we have something worth living and giving for? Everything else in this world that we would live for or give our lives for is temporary, it's transient, it's passing away. But there's someone, because He came and died for us and reconciled us to God, we can live our lives for something that's eternal. His name is Jesus. He is everlasting life. In verse 9, Jesus connects the worldwide proclamation of the good news with this woman's sacrifice of extravagant love. With her eager desire to lay down her treasure to show the infinite worth of Christ who would go to the cross. You see church, when we understand the value of Jesus in our place and union with Jesus, He frees us from our slavery to lesser things. This this works its way out in all sorts of ways. Yes, obviously in financial ways, but also in, in other ways. I don't know about your conception of your life and how wonderful and beautiful it's going to be, but did you know sometimes God will call you to do crazy things like foster a child or adopt a child? Well, I I wasn't planning to have another child, Pastor. I know that. Because you prized freedom. You prized uh, no more sleepless nights. We're done with that season of our lives because we've got things to do, people to see, places to go. There's an adventure to go on. There's retirement money that I've been banking my whole life to spend on myself. I earned it. I deserved it. And God might call you to do something radical, to to get involved in the life of a child who otherwise wouldn't have a parent and otherwise wouldn't have a home. He might call you to, to reorient your whole life and conception of what the good life is for the glory of Christ. What are you living for? Are you living for financial security, for your grandchildren, for recognition, for career advancement, for educational attainment, for sports, for entertainment, for kids? Whatever it is you are living for, is it as great to you as Christ is? Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, Jesus says, people are going to hear about the fact that the temporary treasures we get out of Jesus are nothing compared to the privilege of being transformed by Jesus. The gospel is not about how much we are worth, but about how much Christ is worth and what God has done to make it possible for us to know and love and enjoy and serve and bless and treasure Him. When the gospel is really heard, wherever it is heard, really understood, really received in the whole world, people will know they cannot get over the joy of getting Jesus. you agree with that this morning? That that's really what the gospel is about? That it's about the great treasure that people can know when they know Jesus? If you agree with that this morning, I want to challenge you to do something. I want to ask you to envision yourself as that woman for a moment. That nameless woman sandwiched in this story of betrayal. And I want to ask you, what's your alabaster vial of pure nard? What is your alabaster 
alabaster vial of pure nard? I want to ask you to write it down. One, two, three, four, five things. What are, what are five things that you own outright? You, they're not indebted. They're, they're special to you. Might be an antique car in the garage. It might be a, an engagement ring from a grandmother or a great-grandmother. It might be an extra property that you go to three or four times a year. What is your alabaster vial of pure nard? Write it down. This is called sermon application. I don't do it every week. But this is sermon application. What is your alabaster vial of pure nard? You got it? could be a car, a savings account, a baseball card collection, a family heirloom, an extra house. It could be your freedom in retirement. Let me ask you a question. What if Jesus asked you to sell one of them and give all the proceeds to Him because you treasure Him? What if he asked you to do that? I believe in this room alone, in this room alone, that if that actually happened at North Roanoke Baptist Church, that we would be debt free by the end of the month. I believe that with all my heart. And yet, we shouldn't do that because we want to be debt free. We should do it because Jesus is worthy of it. We should be asking those questions because we understand the value of Jesus, of knowing Jesus, of belonging to Jesus. When Jesus overwhelms us with the infinite worth of knowing Him and belonging to Him, nothing that He could ask of us is too great or too extravagant. The sacrifices of extravagant love given to Jesus to prove the worth of our Savior and the power of the gospel are worth it. Because He has liberated us from slavery to far lesser things. Jesus says, not the pastor, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be spoken of in memory of her. It's not going to be spoken all the great things, wonderful things that she got. She got a new house and a Ferrari and a car, or at the end, I guess, a donkey. No. But instead, what will be spoken of is that when she got the gospel, nobody made her, nobody had to convince her. The surpassing worth of Jesus himself compelled her to give him her best. Finally, church, we must understand what is at stake. When we hear a message like this, I I can see people squirm. I can see people uncomfortable. But it's the Bible, church. This is Jesus. And He's worthy of our best. In verses 10 and 11, Mark returns to the story of the betrayal of Christ. And you might be thinking, what in the world do these two stories have to do with one another? Here's what they have to do with one another. Without even writing the sentence, here's what Mark is shouting from the pages of Scripture. You've got two options. 
You can lavishly love Jesus or you can betray him. Judas is a prominent insider. The woman is not even named. He's inviting us to compare these two responses to Jesus. The woman gave whatever she could to Jesus. Judas took whatever he could get for Jesus. The woman did a beautiful thing. Judas did a terrible thing. The woman served Jesus as Savior. Judas sold Jesus out for the price of a slave gored by an ox, 30 pieces of silver. The woman is notable for her devotion to Jesus. Judas is notorious for his deception to get Jesus. The woman blesses Jesus. Judas betrays Jesus. By placing this beautiful story of sacrifice right in the middle of the story of Christ's betrayal, Mark is showing us those are our options, church. We either treasure Jesus or we betray Him. As Aiken writes, some people find Jesus useful because of what they think they can get from Him. Others find Jesus beautiful because they get Him. Are you thankful this morning that you got Jesus? Jesus is building a kingdom filled with people who treasure Jesus above all other treasures. A people who gladly part even with their vials, their alabaster vials of pure nard. Their beach homes and their cars and whatever it is they've accumulated. And they part with it because they found the surpassing treasure of Christ. And when we do that, the whole world knows And is forced to consider that we have been changed by a king who changes our priorities. North Roanoke Baptist Church may Christ find in us, his people, the sort of love and devotion that characterizes the people of God. May we not betray him, but may we bless him as we give our all for the sake of the one. Who gave himself for us. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you paid our debt on Calvary's tree. You've given us in Mark this beautiful story of a woman who gave her best to you. And God, as a, as a pastor, as an individual, as a dad, there are times I've not given you my best. There are times that her example has not been something that has characterized my life. And God, I recognize in a room this size, that's got to be true for many of us. The great news, God, is you knew that Judas would betray you. You knew that your other disciples would walk away and you still went to the cross for them. You still gave them an opportunity to be reconciled and restored and redeemed and to know the surpassing worth of belonging to Jesus. This morning I ask God in Jesus' name that you would mobilize your people, that you would motivate your people, not not by a great compelling vision, not not by the the worthiness of causes, but God that you would motivate and compel us to live and lay down our lives for you because Jesus is worth it, period. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.